Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles one more time to the book of Exodus as we come this Lord's Day to Exodus chapter 40, our final of 76 sermons, as Pastor Nick mentioned. So if you've been here through all 76, uh, we have a Mother's Day pin for you today. You can pick those up in the window as your uh, congratulations for making it through uh, our Exodus through this book. But I, I hope that you have... Uh, Learned. I hope this has been a fruitful study for us. As I mentioned many times, the book of Exodus is a picture of our story. It's a picture of how God has saved us. We have seen how God rescued His people from their slavery there in Egypt, how He brought them out from under the rule of a wicked king from Pharaoh. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea, and then uh, they started that journey uh, that we're leaving off on here in Exodus 40 that will ultimately take them to the land of promise. And we've seen how God has given His Word to His people in the wilderness, how He has taken them out of Egypt, and now He's taking Egypt out of them, and how all of that parallels our story of salvation. Uh, we too were born in slavery. The Scripture says we were born enslaved to sin, and just as God's people needed a deliverer or a rescuer there in Egypt, we too need a deliverer, we need a rescuer. And so God sent Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins, to take us through the waters of baptism, and now He is teaching us how to live on our way to the land of promise. And so as we come to the conclusion of the book of Exodus, we are yet again reminded of these things, and ultimately we're reminded that we are to live for the glory of God we're going to spend our time this morning just looking at the closing verses, at verses 34 through 38, but just to give you the context, as you begin in Exodus 40, Moses writes here that it was at the first day of the first month. This was essentially the Hebrews' New Year, and this was the first celebration of it for a year before was the Passover. And at the Passover, when they were there in Egypt, before God delivered them, that was the day that God said, from now on, this shall be the first day of the first month. And so one year later, we come to the end of Exodus, where God has done so much in the life of His people, and now He is going to dwell among them through the tabernacle. And so we're going to pick up uh, with the last part of verse 33, and just read those last few verses and once again, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, if you would, as I read this text for us. And this is what Moses writes of his own experience through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Beginning there at the end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. If you would pray with me once again, church. Father, we thank You for this book. And we thank You for Your Word. God, we see here in these closing verses a reminder of all that was accomplished in the book of Exodus. It was all accomplished for Your glory and for Your namesake. 
And so, Lord, I pray that as we conclude this study today, uh, that this time we have in your word would bring you glory. And Lord, we know what brings you great glory is when we repent and we place our faith in you through your son, Jesus. And so I pray for any here, God, who's yet to do that, who's yet to turn to the truth of the gospel, the hope that lies within Christ. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring them to repentance and to faith. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as we consider these closing thoughts on this book, that we might come to understand more fully what it means to live for your glory and not our own. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We have celebrated graduations today. Perhaps that takes some of us back to when we graduated. So I'll take you back to your high school history class this morning. You may remember the name King Louis XIV. Uh, he reigned over France from 1643 to 1715. He gave himself that nickname, Louis the Great. He demanded that all of his people see him as the greatest king ever of France. Uh, he ruled with absolute power and authority over his people. He demanded that they live for whatever he wanted them to do and live for his glory. He made the infamous, sta infamous statement, that I am the state. And that all was well and good for him until he died in 1715. He had actually left instructions for how his ceremony would go and his funeral. And so he wanted everyone to recognize his greatness even in death. And so there in the cathedral, as thousands poured in, they recognized that the cathedral was very dimly lit. And at the center, there in the front, laid a gold casket where Louis XIV laid and on that casket there was a bright burning candle he wanted his greatness displayed even in his death and so the people sat in silence they saw this bright light burning until the bishop who was overseeing the service walked slowly to the casket looked at that candle and then snuffed out the light and then he turned to that congregation and he said these four words only God is great. 3,000 years before this reign of King Louis XIV, there was another who demanded absolute allegiance. There was another who ruled with power and authority. We know him only as Pharaoh. And in his power, in his authority, he enslaved the Hebrew people and he demanded that they build cities for his glory and his name's sake. And that was all well and good until the God of the Hebrews brought those plagues among him and his people. But in his pride, in his rebellion, in his defiance, he pursued the people of God and his candle was snuffed out. And not through the extinguishment of a flame, but through a tidal wave that crushed him in the Red Sea and took he and his army to their deaths. You see, what we see in Louis XIV and what we see in Pharaoh is the fate of all who live for their own glory. It's the fate of all who say, look to me, glorify me. In the end, they all meet the same faith, same fate. And the Scripture tells us that there is only one who is truly great. David reminds us of it in Psalm 77, verse 13, where he says, Your way, O God, is holy. 
Who is great like our God? As we come to the end of the book of Exodus, we are reminded once again, friends, that all of these things that have taken place through these 40 chapters, ultimately they have all been for the glory of God. And certainly God rescued His people from their slavery because they cried out because of the anguish they were in. But He rescued them for a reason that was far greater than themselves. He rescued them so that they might worship Him. That was the command that was given to Pharaoh as Moses went to him and said, that word from the Lord, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. And now as we come to the end of this study, we see that very worship is what's going to take place. Now the tabernacle has been erected. Moses has not only blessed these things, he's now brought them before the Lord. Everything is set up exactly as it should be. And now God's presence will dwell there in the tabernacle among his people. So once again, I want to take just a few moments to consider what God teaches us through this about Himself, about us, ultimately about Christ. And so we'll begin with that first point in your outline. We're reminded in these closing verses, again, that God is holy and set apart from His people. Now that is what the word holy means. It means to be set apart. And what we've seen from the garden all the way here to the tabernacle and what we see throughout the Scripture is that in God's holiness, He is set apart from sinful man. That's why there in the garden, Adam and Eve's perfect fellowship with God is disrupted when they rebel against God, when they sin against God. That they can no longer be in the presence of God. They are removed God puts a barrier there at the garden to keep them out. Why? Because they are now set apart from His holiness. And He is set apart from them in His righteousness. The question that comes to us then in Genesis 3 is, how can this holy, perfect God then ever dwell among a sinful people? And we've seen how that takes place through the tabernacle. Through these barriers that God puts in place, and yet in the midst of them, He will dwell. But as He does this, as His glory fills the tabernacle, we're reminded still of His holiness and His set-apartness. And notice again verse 34. Moses writes, Then this cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. This would have been a frightening thing to see and we have seen this before we've seen how when God's glory descended among his people how it was an awesome thing and it was a frightening thing you think about how God led his people and how he showed them glimpses of his glory before that pillar of cloud by day that fire by night that protected them from Pharaoh's army and we saw it there at the Red Sea and we saw it there at Mount Sinai You remember that that mountain, God's mountain, Exodus 19, as God's people get there and as God's presence descends on that mountain, immediately what takes place? The Scripture tells us in Exodus 19, verse 16, that on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And the way the people responded, it says, all the people in the camp trembled. Why? Because that's what you do when there's thunder and there's lightning. 
You, know, you think about when a storm's coming. We live in a day and an age where you can have warnings on your phone, warnings on your TV, warnings on the radio. You don't need to know how to read the skies. You can just click a switch and you can see a storm coming. And how do we respond or how should we respond to that? We're told to take shelter. I realize in our culture there's a crazy few who run towards the storm. But for the rest of us, the sane people, what do we do? We, we protect ourselves. We, we take shelter. Why? Because something is coming on us that is greater than we are. You ever tried to face off with the thunder? <laughs> you ever look at the lightning and say, I'll take you? No. It is so much more greater than you. It is so much more awesome than you. And it's just a glimpse, just a picture of the glory and the holiness of God as it descends there on Mount Sinai. And the people's response to that is one of great fear. In fact, it says there in Exodus 19 that the people trembled. That word means, can be translated, that they were frightened. And we see God's presence coming on that mountain like a fire. We saw it there at Mount Sinai, and now we see that in the tabernacle. In fact, that's why some refer to the tabernacle as the portable Mount Sinai. It's a picture of God's awesome presence dwelling among His people in such a way that it is awesome and it is frightening. And yet this is the way that a holy God would dwell among His people. But notice what else we see here. Verse 35 tells us that as the glory of God filled the tabernacle, that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this may catch you a bit off guard. After all, we've seen time and time again how Moses fills that very special role in the book of Exodus. How he's the mediator. He's the one who goes before God on behalf of the people. He's the one who goes before the people on behalf of God. The entire reason this tabernacle is being constructed is so that God might dwell among His people and meet them there. And yet in this moment, as His glory fills it, the text tells us Moses can't go in. Well, why not? Well, I think one of the first reasons is because in order for one to enter into God's presence, a sacrifice had to be made. We learn that in God's instructions He gave in regards to the tabernacle, in regards to the high priest. The high priest was the one who would go in and would make sacrifices on behalf of the people, but he also had to make a sacrifice on behalf of himself. That the priest was as flawed as the people. And so there had to be atonement for his sins in order to make atonement for other people's sins. And so Moses can't just walk right into the presence of God. That there has to be a blood sacrifice. But I think there's something else here as well. There's something special about how God's glory is initially filling the tabernacle. And I think the reason that Moses can't go in is because God's glory so overwhelms the tabernacle in this moment. And it reminds us of an important point today. That God is infinitely more glorious than we can ever expect or imagine. And friends, we desperately need that reminder today. Because most of us in our culture, and sadly at times in our churches, we have taken God, and we've come to a rather low view of Him. 
And at the same time, we've taken man and we've come to a rather high view of man where we tend to think of ourselves principally and we think of God in a more secondary sense. And rather than esteeming God as holy and righteous and glorious, we've lowered who He is. And so many picture God as this spiritual, ambiguous being. Many picture God as one that you can experience in whatever way you choose, you seek Him, however you want to. Even those of us who understand the Gospel, we consider worship as something that you do based on your desires and your wants and what you think. You, you just come to God in whatever way you deem to be best. And yet here in the Scripture, we're presented with a very high view of God with a glory that overwhelms His people, and with a presence that's so awesome that it's terrifying. Friends, when's the last time you considered the God of the Scripture as terrifying? I believe we've made this picture of God outside of the Scripture as overly personal and don't get me wrong there's a way to have a personal relationship with God through Christ but we've we've lowered our perception our perspective of God so much that, that we kind of talk about him like he's just our our buddy he, he's just our old pal he, he's just there when we need him and friends the scripture presents us with a very different picture Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 4 what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, that God is a consuming fire. Before long, as we get into the summer, perhaps already I haven't noticed on the news, there'll be what we see each summer, there'll be times of drought, there'll be areas of our country, particularly out west, where there'll be these raging fires, and these fires will consume not only neighborhoods, but entire counties, and they will rage, and they will consume, and they will destroy. Friends, when's the last time you turned on that news story and you saw the fire consuming and wiping out and you thought, that's my God. Now that's the picture the Scripture gives us. That God is so powerful. He is this consuming fire. He is awesome. And we do not control Him. Jeremiah compares God to a bear and a lion who tears his prey to pieces in Lamentations 3. God comes to Jacob in Genesis 32 as a, a wrestler who cripples him. And in the Scripture, we see this awesome picture of God. And we're reminded in these closing verses that it is this God who has delivered His people, who is set apart from His people, and yet at the same time has given them instructions to construct this tabernacle that He might dwell among His people. And there's a tension here. It brings us to our second point there in your outline. We see in this passage that God draws near to His people and He leads them on their journey. So here's this, this tension we have. That the words, the theological words we use here, are we have this tension between God's transcendence and God's eminence. His transcendence and His eminence. His eminence means that God is near and He is actively present within His creation. 
So some tend to picture God as if He created all things, He kind of wound it up like a clockmaker, and then He just kind of stepped back, and He's this distant, cold God who has nothing to do with His creation. And yet the Scripture says, no, that's not God at all. The Scripture says over and over again, passage after passage, it describes God's eminence, how He's actively involved in His creation. He's not distant from it. In fact, He's the one that sustains it. Friends, if God were to take His hold off of the universe today, we would cease to exist. He truly does what we sing about in vacation Bible school and our preschool classes. He's got the whole world. Not just that. He's got the whole universe. He's got all of creation, that which we know and that we, which we haven't even discovered yet. He has it all in His hands. And if He were to remove His grasp for one moment, we would cease to exist. But we also see as God is imminently involved, His imminence here, we see His transcendence. And what that means that, is that God is far above His creation in the sense that He is far greater than it and He is independent of it. It doesn't mean that God is distant and foreign to it. What it means is this. God is not dependent on us this morning. God's going to be God whether you show up here to church or not. God's going to be God whether I preach this sermon or not. God's not dependent on you and I today. But you better believe based on His Word that you and I are dependent on Him. See, He's not our old pal, our old buddy. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. He does not exist to do our bidding. He's not a magic eight ball that we just shake up every once in a while to get some advice from. He's not a supernatural Santa that we go to with our wish list. He's not seeing Grandpa a few times a year and going to the candy store. He is the sovereign creator of all things. And we exist to do His bidding. Not the other way around. And we're reminded here as he draws near to his people of this tension. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 4, 6 where he says this, God is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so we see this tension as we come once again to the tabernacle and these instructions that God gives, He did this so that He could dwell with them. Exodus 25.8, God said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And Numbers 2 gives us this, this beautiful picture of what this looks like. Now remember, God's people at this time are sojourners. So they're not building their dream home on the way to the promised land. They are literally setting up poles and they're setting up tents and they'll dwell there and then when the presence of God moves, they move and then they'll set up their poles and they'll set up their tents and they'll dwell there. And when the presence of God moves, they move and so on and so forth for years in the wilderness until they get to the promised land. But what we read in Numbers 2 is a description of how this camp is set up. And so this camp, remember there's like 2 billion people at this point. There's this camp where they're all setting up their tents, but in the middle of the camp is the tabernacle. In the middle of the camp is all this that God's described. And they set it up in the middle, and then all of the tents would surround the tabernacle, and they would all face it. 
And so every time you opened up the door to your tent and you stepped out, you were looking rather, whether it was up close or at a distance, you were looking at the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell. See, God's desire then is God's desire now. That He might be our primary focus. But the sad reality for so many of us today is is He might be our secondary focus. Maybe third, maybe fourth, He might be on the list somewhere. All these other priorities in life seem to choke out that which the Scripture calls us to. And yet, at the end of the day, we'll do the spiritual thing. We'll, we'll pray before we go to sleep or pray ourselves to sleep. We'll ask God to bless our plans. But we see a very different picture here in the Scripture where it is God who wishes us to follow him in his plans and notice what we see here in verse 36 throughout all their journeys throughout this time in the wilderness whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the people of israel would set out if the cloud was not taken up they didn't set out but when it was they did and so as they opened up their tent, as they would look out at the tabernacle, if that cloud was there by day or that fire was there by night, they knew to stay put. That this is where God is. We will follow God. We're going to stay here. And then when the presence of God would move, they would follow it. And when it would stop, they would set things back up. Why? Because this is where God was going and where God was going, His people wanted to be. Now think about that and think about that in light of how we so often refer to God today. Our culture describes our relationship with God as us drawing near to Him rather than Him drawing near to us. So often we talk about seeking out God. Man is the pursuer. Man is the initiator. God's out there somewhere if you want to go seek Him. So often it is we who invite God into our journey. Here's what I'm doing, Lord. Now come bless it. Here's where I'm going, God. Now watch over me. Here's what I'm going to do, God. Would you join me in this? Here is what I want, Lord. Can you make it happen? We live as if God is there to do our bidding. And yet again, the clear teaching of Scripture is that we are here to do His. Friends, here's the reality, and I understand that for some of you this is not going to make any sense. The only, not primary, the only, not not 80%, 90%, the only reason that you are alive today, the only reason that you and I exist today is that we might glorify God. That this is not a part-time religion. That this is not a, on Sunday what we need to do. God in His Word makes it very clear. We exist for His glory. But the reason that doesn't make sense to us sometimes is because sin taints everything. And so you go back to the garden and what happens? Adam and Eve in the garden had everything, had perfect fellowship with God, but they made a decision not to live for the glory of God. That they made a decision to live for their own desire and not according to the Word of God. And when they did that, 
They were removed from His presence and sin tainted everything and we have been wrestling with this ever since. And that's why for many of us, when we wake up in the morning, our first thought, our natural impulse, is usually not, God, how might I glorify you today? Our first thought might be, I need some coffee. (laughs) Our thought might be, what time is it? What do I got to do today? What's on my list? Man, I wish I'd gotten this done yesterday. I've got this ahead of me today. Our first thought might be, oh my goodness, it's late. I've got to get the kids up. Our first thought might be, all these things. And we rust and we push and we go and we run. And then at the end of the day, we lay down and we start to just kind of empty our minds out. And then we start to think, oh, yeah. Well, God, thank You for my day. And... I pray that everything goes well tomorrow. And then somewhere in our prayer, we start to think about what we have to do tomorrow. And then somewhere in our prayer, we shift from praying to thinking about and worrying about and being anxious about. And we drift off to sleep as we're thinking about, I forgot to go by Walmart today. That, that's our flesh. Our flesh is go. Our flesh is do. Our flesh is run. And yet God has designed us for a uniquely different purpose and we will never understand that purpose apart from the gospel of jesus christ because the gospel of jesus christ shows us that that loving creator sovereign god who we rebelled against through our father adam he demonstrated his love and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us gospel tells us all of us have sinned and fall short of his glory that the wages of that sin is death, that that we deserve to be separated from Him because He is holy and we are not. And yet the Gospel says through Jesus' atoning death on the cross, we can be made right with God once again. We can be brought back into this fellowship with God. We can come to understand that it's not we who need to invite God into our journey, but we need to seek God for what He is doing and what He would have us do to be a part of His plan and His will. We learn what we see in the book of Exodus, that we indeed are saved for His glory and His alone. And we see this ultimately as our focus, our gaze is on Jesus Christ. Just as the people of God would wake up and they would open up those tent doors and they would stare straight out to the tabernacle. We're reminded this side of the Gospel where we land, the Scripture says Jesus came and tabernacled among us. We wake up, we open up our door and we are to look directly at the cross. And we're to live in light of it. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. This reminder from all of the book of Exodus. That Jesus indeed is our mediator who guides us to the promised land. And so just as we see God using Moses and we see the establishment here of the tabernacle and we see how now God is going to lead His people and guide them towards the land of promise, we see that's exactly what Jesus does for us today. He is our mediator who guides us to the land of promise. And friends, everything in this book points to Jesus. I've said all these things before, but I'll summarize them again today. We see in the book of Exodus that Jesus 
is the mediator who goes for us before God. Jesus is the Lamb of our Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt, the Deliverer who takes us through the water of baptism. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is our voice from the mountain declaring His law for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning through whom we offer praise to God. He's the light of our lampstand, the source of our life and light. He is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who, pays, or who prays for us at the altar of incense. And it is Jesus' blood that's on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. Friends, you see, the great God of the Exodus is the great God who has saved us today through Jesus Christ. And as we get a glimpse of God's glory, we're reminded from the rest of God's Word that we are waiting for an even better glory to be revealed. And it is the glory that will come when Jesus returns for His church. Jesus Himself says it this way in Matthew 24, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. See, at that point, there's no need for a tabernacle because Jesus is going to take us directly in to the glory of God's presence. That is what lies ahead for those of us who are in Christ. That is the land that we are journeying towards. That is what we receive when we receive Christ as our Lord. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is in your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So friends, I hope that if you've gained anything from this study, you've been reminded that Jesus is guiding us today to this land of promise, and so, what that means is we, we, don't, we don't need to look out our doors and look for a cloud or a fire. I'm just going to assume here. I know I didn't do this. I'm assuming this morning that you didn't open up your door and look at your watch and say, well, it's time for church. But you know, I, I don't see the cloud on top of Bloomfield Baptist Church today. I don't see the fire. I mean, if you saw fire come out of that church, you probably certainly wouldn't walk in. So, we don't look for that. Why? Because we have something much greater than that cloud and that fire. We have Jesus Christ and we have His Word. And we're called to live under His Word and through His Word and in light of His Word. So we don't need the cloud and the fire because we have Jesus. And so Jesus told His people, listen, you need to follow Me. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that confused some of them. In fact, one said, Jesus, we don't understand this. We, we don't know the way. How, how can we follow you? How, how can we be led on this path? And he said it very clearly, two things in John 14. He said, keep my commandments. Friends, you are not a follower of Christ if you do not follow Christ. <laughs> I realize that sounds rather elementary, but think about it. We're so quick in our culture today to say, oh yeah, I follow Christ. 
and yet we are far from following Christ. We ignore His Word and we disobey His commands and we consider ourselves to be followers. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And second, he said, if you want to follow me, you need to be led by my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who he said would be the helper who would come to guide us on this path. We don't need a cloud. We don't need a fire. We have the Word and we have the Spirit. And so that's what we need today, church. We need this Word and we need His Spirit to lead us that we might apply these things to our life. And so in conclusion, I've thought about this. What's the application from 76 sermons about Exodus? Well, I've got 76 points here. I'm just kidding. Here's just a few. How do we apply our study of the book of Exodus? I think we start by understanding that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our mediator. He is our high priest. He is our tabernacle. And it is only through Jesus that we can be saved. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved. I struggle to come up with the most gracious way to say this, and so I will say it as graciously as I can. Chances are, Some of you in this room are not trusting in Jesus Christ today. And what that means is you're going to die and you're going to go to hell and God's wrath will be poured out on you for all of eternity. I say that with no joy. I say that trying to find what might be the Word that might rattle you and shake you and trouble you that you tremble like they did at Mount Sinai. That that you might see, perhaps for the first time, the awesomeness of God and that you might be pled with through the power of the Holy Spirit to repent and trust in Christ. There is salvation under no other name in heaven or on earth than that of Jesus Christ. And the only option you have today, the only option you have is to trust in Him and repent of your sins. He, not me, not us, He said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Friend, do not test Him on His Word. Repent and trust in Him. We had two young people in our first service come forward. One of them in tears to trust in Christ. And as they did, I praised God and at the same time I thought of our stubborn ignorant rebelliousness that comes as the years go on. There's a reason Jesus said, come to Me like the children. It's not that we're to come to Him in ignorance. It's that the older we get, the more ignorant we get of this Gospel call. There is salvation nowhere else, friend. 
And the best application there is for you today is to repent and trust in Christ. And as you do, to understand that we have been saved to live for God's glory, not our own. Not just on Sundays. Not just when we feel like it. Everything we do is to be for the glory of God. And understand this, that God has not only saved us, but He is sanctifying us. Praise God, we are not a finished work. (laughs) He's not done with us. And He won't be done with us until we enter into glory. And between this day and that, there's a lot of Egypt still to be taken out of us. (laughs) But praise God, He has taken us out of our Egypt. And He is doing this sanctifying work. Understand this as well, that as He's doing this sanctifying work, much of it comes in our wilderness wanderings through sufferings and through trials. Most of us don't come to brokenness and repentance through a life of ease. And it is through our suffering, and it is through our pain, and it is through our heartache then a megaphone at times is opened up to shout to us about the glory of God and that which is to come. You want to lose your grip on this world? Lose things from this world. And lose that which you hold the dearest. And then you will long for that which is eternal. And God is using this for His glory and for our good. We can apply this word by understanding that the God of Exodus, and this is so needed in our suffering and in our trials, the God of Exodus will never leave us or forsake us. He has not abandoned us, friend. He has gone before us. And He has prepared for us glory. And He is calling us to live in light of it. We apply this word then by understanding that one day soon, Jesus will come in glory and He will take us into a glory that will never end. And between this day and that church, our role, our responsibility, our call is to walk by faith and to lock arms together, hold fast, and to press on and to trust in Him. Amen? Amen. If you would stand and pray with me. Father God, I thank You for Your Word and I pray, God, that it would do what it says it will do. It will not return void. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is able to, to pierce to our soul. So God, I pray that Your words would do that. I pray that my words have not confused that. And if they have, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, would You sort that out in our hearts now? That, that we might see Your glory that we might understand that the only way we will live in Your glory for eternity is through Christ. And so, Lord, again, I plead and pray for any who's yet to repent and trust in Christ. I pray they would. And Lord, for those who have, perhaps who are growing weary in those wilderness wanderings, God, would You help us through the power of Your Spirit to hold fast this morning. Not just to sing words, but to believe them as we sing them, to confess them as we sing them. Lord, if there's anything in our life today that is not being done for Your glory, would You help us to repent of it? Would You help us to live every day that we have until our dying breath 
for your glory and yours alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.